A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is the Vice Guide to Right Now, your inside look into the best of vice. It's Friday, November 9th. I'm Sophie Casas. Today, we're debriefing the midterm elections with Vice Editors Harry Cheadle and Matt Taylor. When Democrats claimed over two dozen seats in the House of Representatives on Tuesday, clawing their way back to controlling the lower chamber of Congress, it was in many ways a major victory. But still, Democrats remain on the outside looking in. So in this episode, Vice Executive Editor Dory Carr-Harris speaks with Vice Editors Harry Cheadle and Matt Taylor on what Tuesday's election could mean for the next two years and beyond. This week was the midterm elections, the time halfway through a presidential term when a variety of House and Senate seats, governorships, and also local and municipal positions are up for election. On Tuesday night, the Republicans held the Senate and actually gained two more seats, and the Democrats took back control of the House, gaining 26 seats and creating now a divided Congress. So today we are going to talk to our politics editor, Harry Cheadle in L.A. Hi, Harry. Hi, Dory. And our news editor here in New York, Matt Taylor. Hi, Matt. Hey, Dory. So I think let's start broad and and then we can get more specific into some of the actual races. But what, if anything, does it really mean that the Democrats took the House and the GOP managed to remain in control of the Senate? What's this going to mean for the next two years? So what this means is we're going to see an even more divided government than we had previously seen. Um, Republicans had quite a lot of difficulty passing major legislation when they had unified control of Congress. And now Democrats are going to be able to effectively veto any Republican legislation because they have control over the House. Um, They'll also be able to ramp up investigations into the Trump administration and to Trump himself. So we're going to see um, a lot more conflict, I would say, between uh, Congress and Trump and probably a lot more gridlock. Yeah, and I think arguably we already saw that within 24 hours of the race, just in terms of how the president, while never exactly known for being civil, or calm seemed arguably a bit more out of sorts than normal when addressing the press on Wednesday. It was clear almost immediately after Democrats won the House, and you saw people who knew and have interacted with the president quite a bit, campaign reporters, White House reporters, saying this, that he was in a greater deal of danger politically. He was more exposed than he had been not long before. The president has been threatened by the Mueller investigation 
throughout the course of his time in the White House and now maybe more than ever faces a serious threat that he, even as we see shakeups in the Justice Department and who's running the show there, will be harder for him to control. To go back to a couple of points that both of you mentioned. So, Harry, when you're talking about how we'll see potentially even more gridlock now than we did previously in the first two years of Trump's presidency, do you think that there's a chance that the Republicans will be able to push through any major legislation or are we just sort of into a like a true traffic jam for the next little while? Well, I think we should distinguish a couple things. One is that Trump will be able to continue to govern through executive action, um, as Obama did when Congress was controlled by the Republicans and he was president. Um, so that you can do quite a lot with just the presidency. And then, of course, you also have a very friendly conservative Supreme Court now, and they'll be able to affect changes in American life. But when it comes to Congress, it's extremely unlikely that the Republicans will be able to pass any of their priorities by the Democratic House. I think some people have said that Trump might attempt to work with the Democrats to pass some kind of infrastructure plan, which was also hinted at when he started his presidency. But I really don't see that happening, given how unwilling the president has been to work with Democrats before. And Matt, when you're talking about the president being in even more danger, we know from previous behavior that the president doesn't take well to being threatened or backed in a corner. How do you think, given even, you know, some of the tweets that he's made in the last little while since the midterms, that he's going to react to this now very pervasive and consistent threat that is a Democratic-held House? It's really tough to say, right? There's two tracks for him and, and how he's dealing with the investigation swirling around him. There's the one involving the lawyers. He's paying a lot of money, the White House counsel, people attached to the, the White House and outside lawyers who, for the most part, in stretches, were able to seemingly able to constrain him or, or prevent him from, say, firing the special counsel. And then you have, obviously, the more bellicose, shoot-from-the-hip president that seems to have inspired a lot of Democrats to turn out the way they did, I would be lying if I f said I felt like I had any conception of how he might respond. I think the president did give some indication that he would consider providing his tax returns to Democrats if and when they were to request them, whether just verbally or by way of subpoena. It's really hard to imagine him ever actually forking over that kind of information. We've already seen reports pointing to what looks a lot like potential crimes, although they would have lapsed in terms of the statutes of limitations, in terms of how his father managed and passed along wealth to the president and his siblings. I think the, the thing we can say with the most confidence, though, is that Democrats holding the House means that no matter what the president might do with executive action, firing, shaking up the personnel who are running the Justice Department, they have, as lame as it sounds, C-SPAN cameras. They have the capacity to put people in front of the country one way or another, possibly even including a fired Robert Mueller if it came to that, and shine a spotlight on things that they object to. That's just a simple, seemingly insignificant procedural difference that really could matter just in terms of having 
the capacity to shape the national conversation. And to speak out. Like getting a little bit more granular now, if we're looking at some of the specific races on Tuesday, Harry, let's start with you. What do you think a few of the most significant results are, either wins or losses in the House or the Senate, that sort of indicate any kind of trend in national sentiment or things that we should be on the lookout for or a signal to 2020? What were a few things that caught your eye? Well, it's tough to come up with an overarching national narrative for this election because what we saw were several different things happening in several different regions of the country. In Florida, you had the Democrats losing sort of disastrously in a Senate race uh, where Nelson lost to Scott um, and they didn't do as well in some uh, House districts as they were supposed to. In Texas, you had Beto O'Rourke losing to Ted Cruz, but that at least was closer than many people thought, and the Democrats were able to pick up a few seats. One race in particular that I thought was notable early on Tuesday night was Abigail Spangberger beat Dave Bratt in a very close race in a suburban Virginia seat that has traditionally been uh, very conservative and Republican. So that was the sort of seat that a lot of people thought Democrats could do well in this cycle, and they did. But then on the other hand, you had these states with sort of smaller population states with big rural populations, places like Indiana and Missouri where, and North Dakota, where Democrats sort of got trounced by Republicans um, for Senate seats. So you, you really had, along with the divided government, you have a, a picture of a kind of divided nation where there are a lot of very partisan ideological races and candidates and um, not a lot of unity nationwide at all, uh, which is sort of a grim picture, actually. Do you think that this is just going to continue for the next two years and be the same sort of grim picture in 2020? Or do you think that there are either ways or specific issues that you foresee Democrats and Republicans maybe being able to find some common ground over or being able to present a slightly more unified picture or find a way to get over their partisan differences and align on on any issues in the next couple of years? So one problem and one reason I think that this kind of divisiveness will continue is that in wave elections, it actually tends to be moderate members who lose. Because, for instance, very conservative Republicans are likely from very conservative districts, and so they're likely to retain their positions even when there's there's a major wave election. Um, and then on the other hand, you have representatives from moderate swing districts. They'll probably be less conservative, but they're also more likely to lose. One example of that is in Miami, where um, the Republican Carlos Corbello lost to a Democrat. And that's significant because he was probably the most hawkish on climate change Republican in Congress. So if you were thinking about climate change as maybe a potential issue on which the parties could come together, his defeat actually makes that less likely. And there, are, there have been so many uh, Republicans who are part of the uh, what's called the House Climate Solutions Caucus. So many of those Republican congressmen lost that that caucus might cease to exist or uh, at least become less influential. So 
That's one of the reasons why I'm not hopeful about the country coming together to find solutions on issues because it, it, you sort of have to wonder what those issues would be and, and who in Congress would be able to come together to solve them. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's if we can't seem to unify people on a global issue like climate change for the more sort of local and and partisan issues, I can definitely see how that would seem unlikely. Matt, were there any sort of races that really stuck out to you as being indicative or, or noteworthy um, in specific ways in terms of what issues are going to be important for the next two years? Yeah, I was impressed by the disparity in a lot of really conservative southern but also midwestern and, and especially rural states between how conservative or right-wing even senators or members of Congress were being elected at the same time that voters who supported them were backing seemingly progressive priorities. Like you saw easily passing minimum wage ballot measures in Missouri and Arkansas, where Democrats did very badly, as would have been expected. You also saw Medicaid expansion ballot initiatives pass in very conservative states, Idaho, Nebraska, and elsewhere. I agree that there's virtually no plausible piece of legislation that would come out of a Congress this divided. But one thing I do think you can expect to see happen is for Democrats to pass a bunch of seemingly mainstream economic bills, like a minimum wage increase at the national level. It hasn't increased since 2009. The last one was actually signed by George W. Bush. I think you'll see Democrats pass a bill like that and sort of dare Republicans not to pass it, dare Donald Trump to come out against it and try to put pressure on them along the sort of axes of those populist issues. Because really, one thing that was clear was that Democrats who ran really aggressively populist campaigns, Sherrod Brown in Ohio, even Elizabeth Warren in a reliably blue state, but still you saw that Democrats who had a message on the economy who didn't assume that just because unemployment is low, they should talk about something else, really did well. And it was Democrats known mostly for being moderates or known mostly for kind of having national profiles of, of kind of triangulation that, that struggled. And, and that's partly just because conservative states continue to become harder for a moderate Democrat like, say, Claire McCaskill to hold on. But I think it also speaks to the fact that as difficult as it may be to envision, sometimes being a little more out there the way, say, Sherrod Brown is, seems to have helped Democrats connect with people. Really, what we're seeing in the last few years, and this has always been true in politics, but I think especially under Trump, is that if Democrats want to connect with conservative and rural voters, where they generally did very, very badly on Tuesday, one thing that helps is just having some whiff of authenticity. And when someone like Elizabeth Warren or Sherrod Brown, or even some of the House candidates that Democrats put up in conservative states had that, they at least kept themselves in the running. Going off of what Matt just said, one of the really frustrating things for Democrats about this election is you saw voters support ballot measures that line up with Democratic priorities, like raising the minimum wage and um, expanding Medicaid. And so you have these voters in red states, even Idaho and Utah, who support these things, but they don't support Democratic candidates who also support these things. And I think Democrats have to figure out the reason for that disconnect. 
one obvious answer is that Democrats are also uh, pro-choice and they tend to support gun control. So you wonder, okay, are, are issues like those more important to voters than issues like min- the minimum wage and uh, Medicare expansion? If it's not just that, if it's something a bit more, a bit vaguer about authenticity, about what kind of candidates the Democrats are putting out there, I think Democrats need to take a look at that and, and say, okay, Democratic priorities are popular, but Democrats aren't popular in a lot of places. And they need to figure that out and, and figure that out by 2020. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think another good example of that is Amendment 4 that passed in Florida, allowing people who have been convicted of a felony to be re-enfranchised and vote again because currently they're not able to. That passed, but also Rick Scott, who has been instrumental in making the previous process for people who have been convicted of a felony to get back their right to vote, was elected. So I think that you bring up a really good point or an interesting topic of discussion, which is how can Democrats, given the kind of insane partisan politics and divisive sort of attitude that our country has, try to make the next two years or the campaign for 2020 an issues-based campaign and a policy-based campaign rather than a specific sort of democratic values campaign. They just need candidates who are uh, suitable messengers a lot of the time. I I don't think a lot of voters decide who to vote for based on policies. Um, a lot of voters don't even know which policy candidates support or are a bit confused about the issues and, and what each each party supports. And I think that if you have, you know, the Democrats had Barack Obama for eight years, and uh, you can say what you will about him, but he was able to win these national elections because people personally liked him. And they might have disagreed with him on policies, and but it didn't matter because they, they liked him. And I think there are some Trump voters who have similar relationships with Trump where they may not support all of his policies or even know what they are, but they they trust Trump more than they trust the Democrats. So I think if Democrats can find candidates, especially a presidential candidate who can inspire a level of trust, um, you know, authenticity, like Matt was saying, is, is a key there. I think then they'll be able to say, okay, this person is someone who is going to look out for me and, you know, I, I, I assume that all this wonkish policy stuff that this person believes in is going to benefit me. Absolutely. I think it's interesting on the topic of messengers. I think in terms of some of the Democratic candidates who won their House races, we saw a lot of firsts and a lot of different kinds of messengers than we've seen before. We saw the first two Muslim women elected to the House, one of whom does wear a hijab, the first two Native American women elected to the House, the first openly gay governor, the youngest woman elected to the House. So in terms of the new sort of Democratic messengers, what do you guys think, if anything, this new generation of politicians is is going to bring to the debate? Matt, take it away. I think the short answer is we don't know how much the excitement 
and the feeling of sort of symbolic representation that political scientists might talk about, the, the really important feeling of being represented and actualized by someone who looks like you or who looks like your community representing you, what that will translate into in terms of legislation, which at least for two years, it seems like not much. Obviously, just about all of these firsts were on the Democratic side, and it's hard to imagine these trailblazers being in a position just in terms of the math to author a bunch of legislation that actually becomes law. So then I think the question becomes, how do they serve their party or their voters or their ideology and its adherents in other ways? Do you see Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez continuing to travel the country to work on behalf of Democrats ahead of the next congressional races or even embrace say, an individual presidential candidate would be one question I would have. Do you see some of these really inspiring people line up behind potential next national leaders or leadership figures, presidential candidate or otherwise, for the party? Another thing I think that's worth looking out for is what new caucuses, as sort of procedural or sort of arcane as it might seem, what new factions emerge in Congress. I mean, there's been this thing called the Congressional Progressive Caucus for a long time. It's sort of splintered a bit or at least seemed less influential the last few years for obvious reasons. Democrats didn't have power, among other things. I'd be curious to see what new members do to kind of make those firsts palpable when people are actually looking at what Congress is doing. And then I guess the last thing that I wonder about is there's been this kind of fierce debate that sometimes gets ugly between what I guess you could call the sort of Chapo Trap House wing of the party, which is a very kind of overwhelmingly white male part of the party that wants to talk about economic populism, that wants to talk about corruption, that wants to talk about bad Democrats and which ones are good and which ones are bad. And then there's a much larger part of the party, it seems, that's interested in issues of identity and representation. And especially when the president is cavorting with the kinds of people he's cavorting with, is going after the communities he's going after. I don't think Democrats are any closer to resolving the division in terms of what they should be talking about most, in terms of what they're most outraged about, than they were two years ago. We saw some candidates who talked almost entirely about the economy or picked one thing do really well. But I don't think they've made a ton of headway in convincing the rest of their party that, say, talking about the minimum wage and Medicaid is going to win them back power. I, I don't think we know how to resolve those two visions of a modern liberal party. And I don't know if we're going to get there two years from now. Another thing I, I think about is not necessarily what all these new members of Congress are going to do in the next two years or the next four years, but what's going to happen as they stay in Congress, if they can hang on to their seats. Because uh, a problem with the Democratic Party for a long time has been that their leadership hasn't really reflected the diversity that the base would like to see. Um, you have a lot of older and a lot of white uh, members of Congress just at the very top levels of the party. And if you have someone like Anthony Delgado, who won a seat in uh, New York and, and who's a, he, he survived some, some pretty racist ads, he has, a, he has an impressive resume. If someone like that can gradually, uh, you know, move up and become a uh, like a, a real like 
powerful legislator and a real spokesman for the party. I think that could be really interesting to see the Democratic leadership gradually become more diverse. And I don't know what that'll mean overall, but um, I'm excited to see it happen as as sort of as time passes. Um, this will be something to watch. Given that the Democrats are going to have to go on the offensive in 2020, they're trying to potentially, you know, unseat a sitting president going for a second term. What would be the one thing that if you were imagining what a, a what a, a possible successful strategy could be given the races you've been following and the coverage that you both have been doing over the last two years, what is that one strategy um, that you would want to highlight as potentially being a thing to focus on? I think for me, it's it's inequality. And I wrote about this after the midterms, and we'll probably continue to talk about it and coverage we do in the weeks and months ahead. It's something our readers care a lot about. A lot of our readers are dealing with student debt or dealing with credit card debt, and a lot of Americans are as indebted as they've ever been. I think Democrats would make a mistake to look at unemployment being low and think that they should focus on other issues, that they should focus on how outrageous Trump is personally, or how even perhaps the way he deals with the press, some of the sort of process or arguably kind of meta issues. It really seems to me just talking to some of the pollsters and other folks I've been speaking with since the midterms, Democratic strategists, some of whom are really alienated from the party and others who work with a lot of the party's more mainstream candidates, that when Democrats have a message on the economy, when they're willing to be aggressive about going after inequality the way Barack Obama was in his reelection in 2012, when they're able to really engage on the idea frankly, of their own kind of resentment. Uh, you know, I think Donald Trump has been spectacular at, among other things, fermenting and feeding off of racial and gender-based, among other things, resentment as part of his political campaigns. And I think if Democrats really expect to win back power, they have to find a way to tap into class resentment, into the fact that the president and everyone around him is very rich. They've done fabulously, even compared to where they were in November 2016, and if they can find someone who doesn't seem as if they are personally going to benefit from the presidency and also isn't haunted by a legacy of FBI investigations, ideally, they might be in pretty good shape. I think that's right. And I would add to it that Donald Trump won, you know, a lot. You can attribute his win to a lot of different things, but he won because he was able to win the Midwest and win a lot of disaffected voters in the Midwest. And I think the Democrats need to win those voters back. And and look, judging by the midterm results, these, these people will vote uh, for Democratic candidates, even if they didn't vote for Hillary Clinton. And so it's very possible for them to win. They just need to convince those people that they are on their side. Um, I think for a long time, the most powerful message in American politics has been an anti-establishment message. That's something Obama was able to harness and Trump was able to harness. It was difficult for Hillary Clinton to have that kind of message. So I think um, any Democrat who comes out of the primary will have to have that kind of stance. And that could come from someone like Bernie Sanders, who has been in the Senate for a long time, but is still a relative outsider by some measures. 
And it could also be uh, someone else who has a different claim to being an outsider and, and uh, who can incredibly decry the, est- the establishment. But I think you need that kind of voice to uh, combat Trump's message. You can follow Harry and Matt's reporting at vice.com. That's it for now. Thanks so much for listening. And tune in again on Monday for another Vice Guide to Right Now.